the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. History has clearly shown that Christ is required to overcome the natural tendency of powerful forces to destroy God-given rights, including the right to hear and speak His truth. Welcome to Biblical Citizen. Let's roll with your hosts, Brian and Kathleen Melanakis. Kathleen is an author and retired registered nurse, and her husband Brian is a former company president. Kathleen and Brian discuss current events from a biblical worldview, so we as believers can influence for good in our culture and in the public square. Here is Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Hello, Biblical Citizens. I hope you're having a great day today. We have a wonderful guest, Dr. Cal Beisner with us, PhD, founder and president of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. You know, we are always hearing from the media and the UN, and we've heard it for decades now, that climate change is an emergency. We've actually been hearing that uh, for decades. Many of the predictions that they have been making for all this time have not come true. They said that the oceans were going to rise and cover everything by 2020. I mean, by the year 2000, sorry. Uh, So anyway, now it's 2023, and... What is the update on this? They keep talking about it. How should we respond to the constant talk about it? The Cornwall Alliance, headed by our guest today, Cal Beisner, is a group of climate scientists, economists, scholars, and theologians that educate others about biblical earth stewardship versus climate alarmism. So we are very pleased to have him. We've had him on our show In the past, episode number 47, not that long ago, we encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast. It's on any platform or on the KPRZ website. You can get a good review of what we discussed before. At that time, we reviewed how observing and seeing extreme poverty in India impacted Dr. Beisner in a powerful way. It was a factor in why he helped write the Cornwall Declaration and why he founded the Cornwall Alliance. Through his books, including Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population Resources and the Future, the Cornwall Alliance website, and through speeches and articles, Dr. Beisner critiques climate alarmism and offers a better alternative and helps us sort this all out. Welcome to our show today, Dr. Beisner. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be back with you again. I enjoyed the first time and, and looking forward to this one. Well, I'm going to keep calling you Kel, Kel, because mm-hmm. that actually Kathleen said it wasn't that long ago, but it was actually a couple of years ago. It's, it's incredible how time flies. So <laughs> we want to look at more closely at what this climate change agenda is based on. We want to see how mm-hmm. it holds up to the test of truth. But let me ask you, first of all, who do you see as the main um, propagators or influencers of this whole climate change agenda? Where do these talking points come from? Even even the name itself, climate change, which I think used to be global warming. I mean, mm-hmm. who are the big influencers, influencers here? Yeah. 
Well, um, of course, we could always make the the typical uh, distinction between influencers and actual experts. Uh, influencers may not actually know anything at all about the subject, but somehow or other they've become uh, influential. So you have somebody like Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, Nor- Norwegian or Swedish. She's Swedish. Uh, young lady, I guess she's over 21 now, but she started influencing about this back when she was 16 years old. She clearly didn't know anything significant about climatology, about uh, meteorology, anything like that. But she was desperately fearful about uh, ecological collapse for the whole planet, for the human race particularly. And uh, that fear, by the way, was probably rooted in part in her own uh, psychiatric difficulties. She is, uh, she's uh, diagnosed with some significant psychiatric, really? psychiatric disabilities, wow. which makes me feel very, very sad for her, because essentially what's happened is that her, her environmental activist parents and some friends of theirs, mainly in marketing and media fields, have essentially exploited her. They've turned her into... The, the big face, uh, the the very sympathetic face of climate alarmism, and she really doesn't know anything significant about it herself. And that, I think, is just uh, really sad and quite an injustice to her. Yes. But she would be one of the major influencers. Of course, you know, everyone's heard of Al Gore, former vice president, former senator, uh, and and his book, uh, Earth in the Balance, and uh, his later book, uh, inconvenient fa- uh, let's see, an inconvenient truth, which he turned into the uh, <laughs> the award-winning the the uh, uh, yeah the the big award that Hollywood gives every year. Um, Oscar? Did he get an Oscar uh, for Oscars, that? Yes, yeah, yeah, Oscar-winning um, film, an inconvenient truth. Al Gore, of of course, um, really is extremely outspoken on these things, but he, too, really doesn't understand the science or the economics of climate change, of climate and energy policy, anything like that. And so uh, he's been, uh, again, someone who influences, but he's not a true expert. Now, there are people who are real experts in the field who embrace a pretty much alarmist point of view, uh, or at least uh, who aren't willing to speak out to correct an alarmist point of view. Isn't one are, of those, uh, sorry to interject, but isn't the uh, IPCC, doesn't that, that's right. probably packed full of what I would call quote experts. And then, yeah. of course, the UN in general and our friends at the World Economic, World Economic Forum, Forum, which we've talked about yeah. on this show. There's, I would characterize that as some real muscle. They seem to have real muscle with national governments, but they're highly yeah. influential in this whole thing, aren't they? Absolutely. You know, the group to which most people turn for what they consider to be the most expert uh, advice, uh, expert opinion on climate change is the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was founded back in 1988. Um, out of the uh, World Meteorological Organization and the UN's uh, Environment Program. And initially, it was called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, At the time, people routinely used the term global warming to warn of the dangers. 
little by little, as it became clear that the globe was not warming nearly as fast as they were warning that it was, uh, they began to think, oh, well, we're easily uh, refuted on those claims if we talk about global warming. So that has passed into the rearview mirror, so to speak, and now they, they just talk about climate change, which is kind of handy because anytime you have uh, a difference in weather, well, climate is changing. So it becomes an unfalsifiable proposition, hmm. uh, which is not exactly what science is all about. Science is about... Uh, about making a hypothesis, uh, once it's been tested for a while and seems to uphold reasonably well, you might call it a theory about how something in nature works. Then, on the basis of your hypothesis, you make some predictions about what you should see in the natural world. And then you compare what you actually see with your predictions. And as the late Nobel Prize-winning physicist uh, Feynman, Richard Feynman, put it, if the observations contradict the predictions, then your hypothesis, your theory, your guess is wrong. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or how beautiful your guess is or how many people agree with you. If the observations contradict the predictions, your theory is wrong. Well, And I have an article here that says that it just names prediction after prediction after prediction oh, yeah. that have not come true that we were going to be all underwater by absolutely 20 to the year 2000 by the year and el gore Just, predicted uh, i believe well not only i believe he predicted that the north pole would be completely would be. free of ice in other words no north pole by i don't know something like 2005 or something like that a I long mean, time no, ago I think, I think it was 2013 2013 but i think that was about 10 years ago and my guess yeah. is the North Pole's probably got about as much ice as when he made that prediction. Yeah, the amount of sea ice in the Arctic rises and falls cyclically, and it act- there's actually a sort of a, a balancing thing that goes on between the Arctic and the Antarctic. The more sea ice in one, the less in the other, and vice versa. And so that goes up and down. Um, but no, there's been no long-term downward trend in Arctic sea ice that comes anywhere near matching Gore's prediction. So that's one. But the, the most crucial one is simply the one about global average temperature. According to the IPCC's climate models, the computer models that they use, um, we should have been seeing uh, global, global warming, a rise in global average surface temperature of two to three, possibly even four times as much as we've actually observed by our temperature measurements. And what and- that means is that the models are wrong. And if they're wrong, they don't provide any rational basis for any predictions about future climate. And therefore, also, they don't provide any rational basis for policy related to climate today. So that means that there really is no scientific support for forcing us to go off of fossil fuels onto wind and solar or anything like that. It's all pure political agenda. Wow. And it says right in the Green New Deal that that came up in 2020, proposed by AOC, she, mm-hmm. you know, she makes all of these dire predictions based on the fact that global warming at quote at or above two degrees Celsius beyond pre-industrial levels, it will cause. And then 
you know, billions of dollars of loss to the economy and refugees and millions of people and 99% of all the coral reefs on the earth are going to dry up. And Kathleen, you know, I want to I so, be but, specific about our economic but damage. You're, so. But you're saying that yeah. the global, it is not warming anywhere near that. So it's, yeah. so none of That's these correct. predictions that they are still making, they haven't made, come true in the past and they're not it's not happening now and it's not going to happen yeah. wow yeah my colleague Just, dr david legates is a recently retired professor of climatology at the university of delaware he's the author or co-author of 149 refereed journal articles in climate science he's a genuine climate scientist very very uh, accomplished and david has been saying for more than 20 years that this has never been about climate change. It has always been about politics. It's always been about the, the effort to shift government authority from the most local levels to higher and higher, wider and wider levels, ultimately to a global level, uh, to, uh, to put national sovereignty into the past and move toward a global government. So uh, the French prime minister back at the time that the Kyoto Protocol to the U.N. Convention on, on uh, uh, Climate, uh, the uh, FCCC, the Fr Framework Convention on Climate Change, the French premier uh, said at the time that the Kyoto Protocol was the first step toward global governance. Since then, plenty of other uh, officials in the U.N. and heads of state have as well said, this is what we're headed for. We're headed toward a global government because climate change is, by definition, a global problem. And so it has to be solved at a global level. So we can't allow any countries, any nations to opt out of this. National sovereignty disappears. Well, you know, that government governs best that governs least. Then government is supposed to be by consent of the governed. But the farther you get from the local level, the less you can express, uh, the, the less you can identify what the governed consent to. So increasingly, we have policies determined by the elites rather than by uh, the desires of citizens. Well, I want to ask you about something you said in our discussion last time. And you said that the elites that you just mentioned in these groups and in the World Economic Forum, etc., they mm -hmm. really believe that the world is overpopulated, and they want to make yes. energy more expensive, more scarce, and that really impacts the poor and and others. You know, and they do things like shut down the Keystone Pipeline. They cut down. They sabotage the Nord Stream Pipeline. They print money like it's going out of style. So the poor can't afford to buy food and and mm -hmm. even uh, you know in, Basic in, in keep their in homes it, or right. anymore and, and it actually contribute it kills people. I mean, it, you have to say yeah. that. So the poor are really impacted. They really the world isn't overpopulated, is it? I mean, like who? What? <laughs> how is that? How is that determined yeah. that the world's overpopulated? Yeah. Like who's determined the optimum well, amount of population? <laughs> like aren't there the right. the right amount of people on the earth that God wants to be here right now? <laughs> yeah. 
You know, the, the, the first problem with the whole idea of overpopulation is that there is no quantitative, no mathematical way of defining overpopulation. It doesn't get defined by population density because, for example, we're told that sub-Saharan Africa is overpopulated. But the average density uh, per, you know, people per square mile in sub-Saharan Africa is down around about 60, something like that. Uh, and yet, really? we're never told that the Netherlands is overpopulated. Its population density is over 1,300 people per square mile. And what's really fascinating is that if you track the places that are called overpopulated versus the places that are not, and you notice where, in fact, population density is low, but it's called overpopulated, but, or where it's high, but it's not called overpopulated, turns out the so-called overpopulated places are the places of the darkest colors. And yeah. the non really? overpopulated right. are the places of the lightest colors. All of this grows out of the eugenics movement of the late 19th century, which was itself an offspring of the Darwinian evolutionist movement, which saw white northern Europeans as the most evolutionarily advanced human beings, saw Asians as less advanced and blacks as least advanced. And therefore, since there is a struggle for the survival of the fittest of species, as the subtitle to Darwin's uh, The, the uh, Origin of Species made clear, you have to get the less, uh, less advanced varieties of humans out of the way. So the eugenics movement resulted in population control movements focused on blacks and Asians and uh, Middle Easterners and so on, and that was all part of the aim. But you can't define population uh, overpopulation by population density. You can't define it by uh, age distribution. You can't define it by the rate of population growth. These are actual demographic quantifiers, but none of those gets used to define overpopulation. Now, you know, some wow. people will also say, well, but our growing population is using up all the Earth's resources and we're poisoning the planet while we're at it. So basically we're seen as consumers and polluters. That's not the way the Bible pictures human beings. We are created in the image of God to be producers and stewards as he is. And because of that, because he's given us minds and hands attached to our mouths, uh, so every person born into the world isn't just a mouth, it's also a, a mind and, and hands, we can produce more than we consume in our lifetimes, which is why the uh, inflation-adjusted price for all the things that we extract from the earth, minerals, plants, animals, the inflation-adjusted price for all of those things is sharply downward over the last couple hundred years. It's because people are making those things less and less scarce because resources are not natural, they are man-made. They are uh, man-refined out of the raw materials of nature. The only thing that's getting more scarce over time, as measured by, by price indexed for inflation, is human beings. And even while we're multiplying in numbers, 
our scarcity is increasing because scarcity is a measure of relative uh, supply to demand, uh, and so price measures that. So you can't you can't really define overpopulation in any way that is scientific or or logical. It all is rooted in this uh, Darwinian and eugenicist view that sees human beings as basically consumers and polluters rather than producers and stewards. And the whole thing is rooted in an anti-biblical worldview that either keeps God out of the picture completely or equates God with the universe. Uh, You're either atheist or pantheist. And as a result, the hierarchy that Scripture gives us, God at the top, human beings after him made in his image, and then the rest of nature, which God tells us to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. No, instead of having that hierarchy, we, we see things flipped. Nature becomes most important. Humans are to serve nature rather than nature to serve us, and God just kind of falls out of the picture. Yeah. It really is anti-life. I mean, and, and one author called it the anti-life Malthusian eugenics. I, I, yes. I think we had a. I think we may touch on it. We're happy to say, by the way, that Kel's going to come on next week because we don't even have that much time left in this episode. We knew we wouldn't, so we've scheduled them for two consecutive weeks. But and we may touch on it more next episode. But. One of our other recent guests, Dr. J.B. Hickson, was talking about, he really emphasized that this is a spiritual battle. When you really get to the root Absolutely. of what you're talking about, that this is anti-human, this is anti-human, and it, it makes it seem like humans are a curse on the planet. We'd be better without any humans. And yes, there are some yeah. people, influential people, that say things like that. Um, you realize that this is rooted in even more than just the uh, materialistic And he even said that see. they actually love death, these these eugenicists. Yeah, uh, because it makes for less humans. But I want to ask you about uh, one other, uh, another really kind of core idea. We've already kind of, you've already kind of debunked the idea that the climate is really, the earth is really heating up anywhere near to what they had predicted. But to the degree that the earth has heated up at all, the um, th- this is quoting again from the Green New Deal, uh, again introduced by our wonderful Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I'm going to say her full name. It says, "Quote: Human activity is the dominant cause of observed climate change." So, is human activity has that been shown scientifically? to be the dominant cause of climate change in the rise of co2 for instance the rise well, very, is the rise of co2 directly related to it yeah that's a big very question complicated answer to that yeah. question yeah maybe we no. better wait for next well time. you can you can highlight but you can you can top line you go. some things there, you've yeah. got your very complicated answer no okay great now give us the less complicated no, we, can, we can we can qualify a little bit um, yeah, you know, human activity undoubtedly affects climate on local and regional and probably also global scales. But it's most important at the local scale. Where you have a city, you get what's called urban heat island effect. And the temperature within an urban area can be four, five, six, seven, eight degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it is outside that area, out in, in rural countryside. 
The reason for that is that you know blacktop absorbs heat, buildings absorb heat, air conditioners put off heat to the outside while they cool the inside. All of these different things make urban areas warmer than rural areas. Hmm. So you have urban heat island effect. And when you qualify for that, when you when you weed that out of the global temperature statistics, it turns out that that probably explains at least half of the so-called change in global average temperature. It isn't really global average. It's because the vast majority of temperature monitoring stations are in or very near urban areas. So (laughs) you, you get that out and the apparent rise of global average temperature gets cut in half. And since the the computer models on which the IPCC depends are already two to three, sometimes four times as hot as the so-called global observations, when you take out UHI, they're now instead four, six, eight times as high. Uh, but, yeah, adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere probably does make it a little warmer at the surface than it otherwise would be. Well, what I get out of that... How much warmer, yeah. and what does that do to life on Earth? And the answer is, not very much warmer, but it's good for life on Earth. We know from geologic history that the warmest times have been the most fertile and abundant times, uh, as as the Earth warms, it warms primarily toward the poles, primarily in winter, primarily at night, mm. not toward the equator in the summer in the daytime. So you're raising low temperatures without much change in high temperatures. That expands the growing season, and it expands the growing area. And so we wind up with more agricultural production just from temperature change in addition to more production because of CO2 in the atmosphere, which makes plants grow better. Well, well, well one, Cal, okay. one little point I get out of that is that maybe the answer is for people to move out of cities. That's where it's getting warm, right? But they don't want, I mean, they don't want that. They don't, the we, globalists don't want that. We have reached the end of this episode. So, I'm so glad, Kel, that you're coming back next yeah, week. So thanks for your time today. Yes. We'll, Looking we'll, forward to it. Thank you. We'll go into more of these explanations in to our bless next your neighbor, episode. To bless your neighbor, visit the Cornwall Alliance, cornwallalliance.org, to get more information, and be sure and catch our episode next week. Join us next Saturday at noon for Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Your hosts, Brian and Kathleen Melanakis, seek to educate and activate Christians at a grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibility to influence civic affairs for good. Next week, we will cover another major news happening from the view of the biblical citizen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.